Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. We are going to look at verses 1 to 30. It's not the whole chapter. There are 49 verses in the whole chapter, and it will help us to break that passage down over several weeks so we can spend some more time on some of the salient sections of it that are important for us. Before we dive into our study of the Word of God this morning, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, this is your Word. We pray that you would help us to be to be like those who meditate on it day and night, who are like trees planted by rivers of water, fruit the fruit blooming in due season. Father, I pray that you will help us to feast this morning on your good word, and that from it we may draw life, from it we may see you, from it we may glorify you in the in how we worship, but in also how we live. That you would fill our eyes and hearts today, O oh God. That we may know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to ask as you finally reach Daniel chapter 2, when was the last time you had a good night's sleep? Think with me, when was the last time you had one? Now, for many of you, maybe the better question is, when was the last time you didn't have a good night's sleep? You know, maybe, it's, I, I, you, maybe some of you haven't had a good night's sleep in a long time. Maybe you haven't had a good night's sleep forever. Some of you have had terrible night's sleep on and on and on. And I'm not thinking merely about the fact that you stayed up too late watching TV, trying to finish, you know, a show or trying to... W- watch the end of a game, you know, and it went past your bedtime, but you really, you just really connected. I'm not, not talking about that. I'm talking about when was your sleep interrupted? When was you started drifting off to sleep and then something happened that just totally threw your night off? Was it last night? Was it earlier this week? This month? My guess is it hasn't been that long since something has come that has interrupted your sleep and given you a bad night's sleep. Was it, you know, anxious, anxiety about something? Was it a sick child, for those of you who are parents, a sick child coming into your bed? Mom, Dad, I'm not feeling very well. I threw up last night. All of a sudden you go from sleepy to not sleepy very quickly, don't you? Was it something else? Was it a bad dream? Wives, was it a bad dream about something your husband did and you can't believe he would do that? Kids, when was the last time you had a nightmare? You had a bad dream and it woke you up in the middle of the night, terrifying you so badly that you couldn't get back to sleep. We're reading our text this morning about a man who had a bad dream, King Nebuchadnezzar. He finds himself asleep and then having a terrible dream and it wakes him up and for the rest of that night he is sleepless. And since Daniel has in chapter one called Babylon, the land of Shinar, referencing the land of rebellion, a place of rebellion against God, he called it Shinar back in chapter one I have kind of tongue-in-cheek entitled this sermon, Sleepless and Shinar. It's cheesy, I know. But this is not a text in which Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are going to make an appearance and, you know, meet each other on the top of the Tower of Babel on Valentine's Day. 
This is not a romantic comedy in the least. This is a story about not merely a man who has a bad dream. This is a story about who our God is and how he reveals himself, what he reveals himself to be. And we, there are a couple of things we need to, to see very early on in this chapter. We read very, the very first line of chapter 2, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This is, remember last week we talked about how the Babylonians, uh, they looked at time, the Persian dating method for kings and kingdoms. There was a, an accession year. And that first year they called the accession year for the king. And then every year after that was numbered in turn. So you would have an accession year, then the first year, then the second year. So by our reckoning, this would be at the very end of Nebuchadnezzar's third year of reign. We put it towards the end. Because we find that Daniel and his friends, they are, they are in training and somehow grouped along with the wise men. And yet they are not grouped. They're not immediately a part of that group. They're not numbered amongst the wise men who are immediately called before King Nebuchadnezzar. So it may be one of two things. Either they have, Daniel and his three friends, have recently graduated from that training, which is described in chapter 1. Or they have yet to graduate. This is, they're getting close to that time. But either way, this is, Daniel is still young. Either way, he is 17, 18, perhaps 19, although that's, that's pushing it. He is still a teenager. And so we do not want to enter into the story thinking in our minds, Daniel is a a man by this point. Daniel can't shave yet. There's no reason for him to shave yet, all right? He's got scruff, you know, just just the barest of anything. This is a, a young man. This is a teenager. The second thing we need to see about this is that Daniel, even as he is writing to the Jewish people, and so Daniel as a book is written at the very end of Daniel's life. Daniel writes it at the end of his life. And it's clear that a major emphasis of his writing is to encourage the exiles who are returning back to Israel. They are being sent back by King Cyrus. And Daniel, in part, writes this book, not only for the Jews who are remaining in exile, but also for the ones who are being sent back. He wants to encourage them. But something unique happens in our chapter. In verse 4, all the way to chapter 7, Daniel isn't writing. He stops writing in Hebrew, and he starts writing in Aramaic, which was the language of the people of Babylon, the language of the people of Persia at the time of his writing. What it becomes clear is that Daniel, even as he is writing to God's people, because by this time they would have, after so many decades in exile, they would have spoken not only Hebrew but also Aramaic, It is clear that Daniel is writing to an audience who would not have spoken Hebrew. He is writing with a larger audience in mind. Daniel begins writing chapter 2 as he writes through the rest of his book. He is inviting the nations in. His audience isn't just God's people. His audience is, in one respect, the world. This is a message for believers and non-believers, for Christians, for non-Christians. There's one more thing. In this chapter, especially in verses 1 to 30, two characters are primary. Nebuchadnezzar 
in Daniel. And one of the things that we're going to see is that Daniel seems to write in such a way for us to contrast these two men. That we are going, as we read, we're going to see how this powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, who sits on his throne and is the king of the mightiest empire of the world at this time, how he himself is powerless. And yet what we find is that Daniel, young Daniel, is, though he is a servant, being trained to be a servant, a lifelong servant for the king, though he is lowly at this point, he is powerful. He is the one. If we, if we merely had a picture of these two men and their actions, it would appear to us that Daniel was the one in control and not the mighty king. And this passage sets up these two pictures for us. The proud and powerless king and the wise and confident servant. So look with me at verses 1 to 13. I'm going to simply read through the entire, this entire section of, of chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they, so they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And from this point on, it's all in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made in ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give, the, give its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the, the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him. We are not given a very flattering picture of Nebuchadnezzar in this passage. 
He is a man who is powerless. He's powerless over his sleep. He is troubled by this dream and he does not know what it means. He, in verse 1, we are told that he has dreams. He's, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. The rest of the chapter, however, it's merely referenced in the singular. It's not dreams, tell me the dreams that I had, but merely tell me the dream. It's possible that the dreams here he's referring to is the same dream repeated over and over and over. And it was common in the ancient world to believe that the gods, especially to the kings, that the, that the gods would re- reveal themselves and their will to the kings on important matters. And so that the dreams of the king often, especially in, under certain, certain circumstances, the dreams of the kings became massively important. Nebuchadnezzar is sure that this dream means something. Whatever it is, it signals to him that this is more than just a dream. So he wakes up, he can't sleep, gathers all of his wise men, his Chaldeans, a a special group of people, we talked about them last week, in which they are his advisors in this. And he makes a special demand. But he is not only powerless over his sleep, he's powerless over his spirit. He is anxious, troubled. The word describes extreme agitation. He is disturbed. He is worried. And and there are a lot of historical reasons why Nebuchadnezzar, here at the early part of his reign, would be and should be discouraged or disturbed and anxious. At this first decade mark of his reign, historical sources point us to the fact that at this moment, Western powers to, to him were threatening his empire, and so he was in the process of raising an army to meet those challenges. And you can imagine... Babylon, the, the power of its reach had gone far, far beyond the city. Just imagine the, the administrative difficulties of that. All the questions that were constantly put on his plate. All the matters that were coming to him day and night. All the headaches. The bureaucratic and administrative headaches that he must have had. No wonder he's agitated and having dreams. But in response to this, he demands the impossible. Like a petulant child, almost. Demands the impossible. Not just, let me tell you the dream and you can give me the interpretation. But now I, I demand, I expect you to give me both the dream and the interpretation. You know, back in Genesis, Joseph is able to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And this is similar to that, only... Here we have the, the added expectation of it's not just a, of a, the interpretation, but the dream. And it's an impossible expectation. It's impossible because if they do not fulfill it, the upshot is what? Not just, a, not just death, but extreme death, right? I will cut you into pieces. This chapter is not making it into a Hallmark movie anytime soon. I will cut you into pieces. I will burn down your house. This is a threat not just for these men, but for everyone connected to these men. Perhaps he gives this expectation because he doesn't trust them. That certainly seems what it is. He wants to know whether they can, whether these individuals who claim to have special access to the gods, and if the gods are the ones who are speaking to him, then certainly these guys if they can give the interpretation 
If they can get the interpretation from the gods, then they certainly can get the dream itself. Right? That makes sense. So it's a test on them. It also might be a little bit of a test on his God. Whether the God who spoke to him will actually reveal himself to him. Either way, what we get a sense of is that Nebuchadnezzar senses that this is, in essence, God speaking to him. This is God's word to him. And he is urgent to understand it. He is desperate to understand it. Oh, if only we had as urgent a desire for God's word as Nebuchadnezzar. And when he is opposed, and he is opposed, he responds with anger. He is out of control, explosive anger. This is not measured. This is not rational. The Chaldeans insist they can't do this thing. And the Chaldeans, who are supposed to be his wise men, they don't exactly act very wise in this situation. The king makes an, a demand that is way too great for them. And they, they note that. And then when he presses them again, knowing that the threat of death is there, they basically tell the king, you are being ridiculous to expect this of it, to expect this of us. Not only has no king done this, this is impossible. For you to ask us to do this is, is moronic. The only ones, but they, they do, in the process of this, they do tell the, the king a truth. There is no one on earth who can reveal the dream and the interpretation. There is no one who can do this. Only the gods know this. And they don't live amongst us. They don't tell us these things. And so he responds with anger, furious anger, white, hot, explosive, uncontrolled rage. That's the word that's used here. In verse 12, for this reason the king was angry and very furious. The same description is used here as when he will later throw the three friends of Daniel into that furnace. He is a man who is controlled by his rage, blinded by his rage. He is seeing red. And he orders the the wholesale, not not just the, the death and execution of the men before him, but of all of the the Babylonian wise men, all throughout his empire, to get rid of them all. This is, this is genocide. To kill everyone associated with them and to make it immediate. There is no time frame here to go out and do this immediately. And so we read in verse 13 that the decree goes out and the soldiers led by, we'll find out later, Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, they go out and they immediately begin putting people to death. And some of them, they go and they seek out Daniel and his companions to kill them. Picture the scene. It's the middle of the night. You're Daniel. Teenage boy. Sleeping soundly and all of a sudden, not a knocking on the door, but a pounding, right? Until, until the door is busted open. 
And men, some, it's dark, some perhaps holding torches, others, swords already drawn. They come marching into your place. Marching into your bedroom. How do you respond? Well, red-blooded Americans, right? We pull out every gun possible and we just start unloading. That's not an option for Daniel. Imagine your reaction, you're armless, you're hopeless, you're surrounded by armed guards ready to do the worst immediately. Start begging for your life, start screaming the terror, the fear. Daniel doesn't do any of that. Daniel is the very epitome of powerless in the moment. His life literally hangs in the balance. And what we see throughout the rest of this chapter, he is the one who appears confident and in control. He's the one who is at perfect peace. Look with me at verses 14 to 16. You can see his wisdom, his confidence, his tact, then with counsel and wisdom, or Wisdom and tact, those words are translated differently in different translations, and helpfully so. With wisdom and tact, with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And, and perhaps it's, it's Daniel's confidence. Perhaps it's his quiet question here. He's not screaming. He's not fighting. He's not trying to protect himself. Something about Daniel stops Arioch in his tracks. And rather than carrying out the order of execution immediately, he answers. Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him the interpretation that he might tell the king the interpretation. Somehow, Daniel in that moment is able to get special permission to to give him more time. The very thing that King Nebuchadnezzar was unwilling to do with his advisors previously, I know that you're just trying to stall and gain for more time. Here, because of the way Daniel is carrying himself, because of the way he's responding... Not only Arioch, but Nebuchadnezzar, respond favorably. We'll give you more time. He responds with wisdom, tact, prudence, patience. And then we see Daniel going to where he can find the wisdom for this answer. Verse 17 to 23. Then Daniel went to his house... And he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. You might remember them as the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three guys, these three friends. And he makes the decision known to them. Why? Verse 18. That they might seek, along with him, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. So that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. 
So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes the kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wives and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. I thank You and praise You, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of You. For You have made known to us the King's demand. This, these three verses there, verse 20, sorry, verse four, four verses, 20 to 23, give us a picture of who Daniel understands to be his God. And we're going to come back and spend more time on this next week because critical, if, if part of what Daniel is trying to encourage us to see is how to live as exiles in a world that opposes us, the very foundation of that is who we understand our God to be. But Daniel sees that God reveals these things to him. And he praises the Lord. And he rightly responds with exuberant praise. And so now armed with answers, he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar, who has made these impossible demands. And I just want you to imagine, Daniel now has the leverage to win all the honors, all the gifts, all the rewards that were promised to the Babylonian wise men. Daniel has the means to save everyone else. When Daniel says, hey, can you give us some time? There is a stay of execution. Everybody's life now hangs in the balance on what Daniel would do. And Daniel has the answers to the most urgent problems facing the most powerful king in the world. And if if knowledge is power, there is no one more powerful than Daniel in this moment. And just imagine you. You alone in all of the country having the, the answer to the most important problem facing our country. Imagine if you had that answer. No one else had it, but you knew the answer. And the president calls you. I need you to come. How do you walk into the Oval Office? Right? With what confidence? Oh, I've got something. You need it. The whole country depends on it. These people's lives. And yet what we find in Daniel, despite having the confidence, his confidence is not in the answers. It's in his God. More than this, it's, it's not pride he shows, but humility. Even at this moment. Read with me. Moving on. Verse 24 to 26. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. And Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. I love how Arioch acts like this is all, like, I found this guy. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And then you see Daniel's response. It is bold and it is humble. 
He says in verse 27, he gives the hard truth about the people Nebuchadnezzar has been trusting in. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, they cannot declare to the king. He makes the honest observation. Everyone that you're trusting in, everyone that you're putting your hope in, they are good for nothing. They do not have answers. They cannot help you. That is a bold truth to say. Certainly that Nebuchadnezzar is inclined to agree with him at this point. But Daniel wants it to be clear. Look, there is no one, none of the people that you trust in, none of the means that you trust in to receive revelation from your God, none of them are reliable. More than this, Daniel speaks a hard truth about who the true God is. Verse 28 and 29. He says, you're... Your wise men, your astrologers, your sorcerers, they're good for nothing. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon the bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. What we have here is is Daniel declaring to Nebuchadnezzar, on one hand, that, that God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar things that are going to happen in the future. And we'll look at that at the end of chapter 2 at another time. But part of what he's doing here, the big part of what he's doing in these two verses, is he is undermining Nebuchadnezzar's God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a fervent worshiper of the god Marduk. He had named his son after that god. Like many of you might name a son or daughter after someone you respect, someone you love. In the ancient world, it was common to name your children after the god that you worshipped. And he named his son after the god Marduk, his god. And Marduk is particularly known for his violence. Marduk was believed to have created all things, and he creates humanity for the sole purpose of being his slaves. And the kings on earth were representative of Marduk's will. And so that all of Babylon was to the king his slave, just as the king was a particular slave to Marduk. Marduk was a violent, violent, was believed to be a violent god. And that violence, you can see, traced through Babylonian history. A perverse God. You can see that perversion in Babylonian history and culture. And Daniel comes to this man. And he says, let me tell you about who the real God is. There is a God in heaven. And it is not your God. There is one who rules over all. This is a bold truth. If the the wise men of Nebuchadnezzar were killed merely because they couldn't tell him the dream. Perhaps Daniel will be killed because he will tell Nebuchadnezzar that his God is no God at all. But even as he comes in with answers, even as he comes in with the dream and the interpretation, Daniel comes in humbly. Read verse 30 with me. 
But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart or It's put like this in another translation. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What Daniel is doing here is he is diminishing his own role in this. He is basically saying, look, I am here and I'm able to give you both the dream and the interpretation, not because I am great. Not because I am competent, not because I am of any importance, but only because of God's mercy. What Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to see, and what you and I must see, is that Daniel views God's revelation at this time as an act of God's grace. That is, God is speaking, and it is a gracious word. There is nothing in Daniel... That God had to give his information, this information to Daniel, for him to pass it on to Nebuchadnezzar. And there's nothing about Nebuchadnezzar that God is revealing this information to him because Nebuchadnezzar is in any way special. In fact, what we find is that the information that God gives him about the future is nothing that Nebuchadnezzar can even do anything with. It's not as if God is revealing him to him, things in the future so that Nebuchadnezzar will then be able to plan because God needs Nebuchadnezzar for anything. No, this is purely of grace. God's word is God's grace in written form. Friend, I I want you to understand something. If God did not speak, there there would be no knowledge of him. There would be no knowledge of our sinfulness. There would be no knowledge of what is really wrong with the world. There would be no knowledge of how we might know God in truth or we might know things of Him from the world, but we would never know Him. More than that, we would have no hope to know His salvation. God's Word is God's grace. And it comes not because Daniel is deserving of the being the deliverer of it, nor is Nebuchadnezzar worthy of being the receiver of it. It is given purely of God's grace. God is making himself known to Nebuchadnezzar here. And it is an act of mercy. God's revelation is a mirror. It tells us who we really are. And it is a window. It shows us who our God really is. Not some designer God of our own imagination whether it's Marduk in the ancient world or if it's some form of Jesus in our modern day. The Bible gives us an honest picture. It tells us who our God is, the one who is gloriously reigning over all. And it leads us with three implications. First is that Daniel is an example to us. He is an example to us to us. The fundamental difference between Nebuchadnezzar, the powerless king, and Daniel, this powerful, confident, wise servant, is not in Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not in Daniel. The fundamental difference between these two men is the one in whom they trust. There is nothing more important about you and I than in who we trust. There is nothing more important about you than what you believe God to be like. Than who you believe God to be. Isaiah 26, 3-4. 
You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting, is an everlasting rock. We read earlier of Philippians chapter 4 and there we were told that if we will look to the Lord, if we will trust in him, he will keep us in perfect peace. A peace that is beyond all, that passes beyond all understanding. The peace of Daniel, when he is interrupted in the middle of the night by men with torches and swords ready to kill him. That kind of peace. There's a story that is told of two officers during the Civil War. And these two officers, as, as they are, their, their, their encampment is being attacked. Bullets were said to be flying over. Cannonballs were said to be landing nearby. And men are running to and fro in panic. And these two officers are said to be walking toward one another calmly. And as they get close to one another, the one nods his head in quiet confidence. And the other one asks him simply, what is the purpose? What is the chief end of man? And the other one responds to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the first says, I knew you were a Westminster man. That is, both of these men had absolute confidence in who their God was. And while others were fleeing and in total panic, these men were given perfect peace. A peace that was beyond understanding. Friends, if you and I are to know Daniel's peace, we must know Daniel's God. Secondly, Daniel is not only an example to us of one who trusts in God, he is himself a picture for us. You know, it's, it's tempting for you and I. We read the story of Daniel and we want to put ourselves in the place of Daniel. We want to fill his sandals. We want to be Daniel. Be a Daniel. Be bold. Be humble. Be wise. Be confident. Be full of peace like Daniel. And you can too if you will do this and this and this. And Daniel is certainly an example to us, but he is a picture for us. Daniel, by his confidence in God, he saves many, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar, in in his anger, he threatens the lives of many. Tear them to pieces, burn their homes down, destroy them all. And by Daniel's faith in God, by Daniel's wisdom, many are saved. If this doesn't remind you of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 12, I don't know what does. We are told there that the Messiah, this one, the servant of God, will act wisely. And by his wisdom, many will be saved. Many will be redeemed. We find that Christ himself in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, he is our wisdom of God our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. We are not Daniel in this story. Daniel is a picture of one who is truly wise. He is a a small picture of one who can truly save and does. And this leads us to our last point. This passage in the book of Daniel reminds us of God's heart. As I mentioned earlier, Daniel is writing this not in Hebrew primarily, but in Aramaic. 
God reveals himself not to Daniel first. He reveals himself to a pagan king. He reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar, a a man who did not believe in him, did not know of him, did not care for him. Why? As we're going to see, God is interested in Nebuchadnezzar. God's heart here is, is painted wide and clear. God desires the salvation. He desires Nebuchadnezzar to know him. This, this we see the heart of God writ large. That Daniel is a, is a message of salvation, is a message of hope, not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. Brothers and sisters, God's heart is for your coworkers. It is for your family members. It is for our friends who stand outside of Christ. God's heart is for the world. This is why this passage is written the way it is. This is why God reveals himself to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar. And friends, you who are here this morning, who have not trusted in Christ, thank you for joining with us. Thank you for taking the time today to gather with us. I don't know what brought you here, whether it was mere curiosity, whether it was the invitation of a friend. But I want you to see something here. God does not stand indifferent to you. God is calling you, not not merely inviting you. He is commanding you. Come to me and be saved. All ends of the earth. This is a command to come, to repent, to turn, and to trust. To turn from living your life your own way, to submit to the way of Christ, and to follow after Christ, to trust in His work. That His death on the cross is sufficient for you. That He alone can save. Friends, trust in this Savior. Come to know this God who longs for you, loves you who desires to be known, who desires to save. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you rule over all things. And your word is given graciously. Your word is an act of grace. Oh God, help us to know you, to follow you, to trust in you and to declare you, to proclaim you to the ends of the earth, that they may know you and join in this confidence that we, by your mercy, have in Christ Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.